All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Okay. It's good to see you. You look tired. And by look tired, I mean sound tired. Look tired is kind of offensive. So, uh, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We are continuing through church history, and uh, we've got some fun topics coming up. So, stay strong. Throughout the end of the semester, we're going to talk about things like uh, Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Movement. Where did that come from? We're going to talk about race and the black church in America, which is a very relevant topic for what uh, our culture is going through. We're going to talk about what it was like to be a Christian in Germany during World War II. That's going to be fascinating. We're going to talk about some heroes of the faith, some enemies of the faith. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, fun topics coming down the pipe, pike, whatever is the correct one. But let me open with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into what we are talking about today. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today that you have uh, sustained us and that you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So we thank you for the chance to gather, uh, the chance to learn not only about your word in the sermon, but also to learn about your love for your church, who often errs and yet you pursue her. So we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's talk about a movement in theology that happened really with the roots in the 1600s and 1700s, but really takes off in the 1800s, of what is called theological liberalism. This is a movement that we are still feeling. This is a movement that we have still not recovered from. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about this movement. If you want a great book on this, a short book, this is usually required seminary reading. It is uh, the book Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen, one of the uh, founders of Westminster Seminary. But essentially, this movement is going to affect everything, okay? It's going to begin in Germany, where many bad things begin. And then it's going to move to the U.K., And then it's going to move over to America, and it is going to influence and affect seminaries. It's going to affect denominations, etc. So if you want to know, for example, why we here at Parkway have a Presbyterian church that's across the street that is a liberal Presbyterian church with female ministers, gay rainbow flags in the sanctuary, etc., it is because of theological liberalism. And because of that, you have to have this conservative reaction. The same thing is true among the Baptist world. The same thing is true with Methodism. In fact, the Methodist church has never recovered from theological liberalism. Why can you have a lesbian lady teaching your your church as a pastor in many Methodist churches? It's because of this. There was never a conservative swing uh, like there was in other denominations. In other denominations, Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, Southern Baptist, whatever it might be, there was a conservative reaction to that. And so we're going to talk a lot about those kind of things today. If you think of major schools that were originally started to train ministers, Harvard started becoming liberal, so the reaction was Yale. Yale started becoming liberal, so the reaction was Princeton. Princeton started becoming liberal. There was Princeton Seminary, which is a different entity than Princeton University. It started becoming liberal, so some guys started Westminster Theological Seminary as a conservative uh, response to that. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today is what is theological liberalism? Where does it come from? And what should we think about it? I want to give you a quick story on on how influential this was. About 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, Theological liberalism had dominated seminaries and churches in the United States. Let me just give you one example. The largest Protestant seminary, and today it's an excellent seminary, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Al Mohler is the president there. Today it's a great seminary. It's one of the seminaries we encourage people to go to if you're thinking about seminary. Trinity Evangelical Divinity is excellent. Westminster is excellent. Talbot School of Theology is excellent. Southern Seminary is excellent. But because of theological liberalism, it had completely overtaken Southern Baptist seminaries. They had a lesbian wedding in the basement of Southern Seminary. They used to have a New Testament professor named Molly Marshall. And she would start her class by saying this. For God so loved the world that she gave her only begotten daughter, that whoever believes in her will not perish but have everlasting life. If you have a problem with that, you have a problem with me, and you need to quit the course. Okay? So the faculty is denying the resurrection. They're denying the deity of Christ. They're denying penal substitutionary atonement. It's not even Christianity. That's the point of Machen's book, that theological liberalism is not even Christianity. And that is going on. But what you have is you have some trustees there that are conservative. Okay? You have a guy named Jerry Johnson who will go on to be the president of Criswell College. And then you have a young Ph.D. who just finished up, writing on his dissertation on Karl Barth, named Al Mohler, who's a big figure today in the theology world. And he becomes the president, and he's a conservative. And so what he does is he demands that the entire faculty sign a statement of faith. They have to affirm historic orthodox doctrine. And so students are quitting. Faculty is quitting. Students hosted a uh, kind of a protest outside Dr. Moeller's office where they lined up in the hall. And so what did Dr. Moeller do? He ordered them pizza. 
right? Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. And so the professors would pray for things like, God, we thank you for this food, but not the means by which it came. And there was all this clashing and fighting. And through guys like a guy named uh, Paige Patterson, who became the president of Southwestern Seminary, a judge named Paul Pressler, etc., you got what was called the conservative resurgence. Why is it today that there are conservative seminaries, conservative Baptist seminaries, conservative Presbyterian seminaries, entire conservative denominations? That is a reaction to theological liberalism. So let's talk about this and talk about where we got here. Now, I need to give a clarifier that's super important. When I say liberalism or theological liberalism, that is not political liberalism. Don't bring all your politics into this. Don't think Democratic Party or anything like this. Theological liberalism is different than that. Now, they're related. I've never met a theological liberal who's a political conservative. They, they are related, but these are different movements. So let's talk a little bit about what theological liberalism is. Here we go. Liberal theology replaces the traditional authority of Christianity the Bible, creeds, confessions, etc., with the enlightenment ideals of human rationality and experience. It seeks to remove all the supernatural parts of Christianity, what I consider the good stuff, and simply tries to keep the things which would be acceptable to a human reason and experience. Okay? To say it another way, whereas historic Christianity, Christianity is a propositional religion. Did you realize this? We experience God, no doubt. Emotions and feelings are not bad. They're not always true, but they're not bad. But Christianity is a propositional religion, meaning it is founded upon facts. It is founded upon ideas. It is founded upon truth. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't care how much you think you love God in your heart. That's a waste of time. Christianity is a propositional religion, but not theological liberalism. Whereas historic Christianity focused on doctrine, liberal theology focuses on, listen to these following things, personal experience, moral living, internal feeling, and social work, okay? That's not just a modern thing. When I say social work, again, don't think 2020 uh, social justice. This, this began, again, back mainly in the 1800s, but that becomes the focus of liberal Christianity, okay? So, <clears throat> now, with this social justice element, let me mention something about that. What they would say is that people don't need salvation from God's wrath. Rather, they need salvation from the oppression they experience in modern society. Therefore, social justice becomes the main focus of the gospel. Let me ask you this question. What is your main problem biblically? Sin. Why is sin your problem? Because it puts you under the wrath of God. Let me say this as strongly as I can. God is your problem. Your problem as a sinner is God. Now, he happens to also be the solution right? But that's the problem. The biggest problem, what does the gospel save us from? The wrath of God, the condemning wrath of God. We have an infinite creator we've rebelled against. We deserve infinite punishment. That is what we need to be delivered from. The focus in theological liberalism is not that. Your primary problem there is not between you and God. It's between you and others. The problem is that certain systems in society are oppressing certain people, and the gospel is about this type of political and social liberation. You'll see that theological liberalism is linked to another movement called uh, liberation theology, which happened in a lot of Latin American countries that were becoming somewhat Marxist. The gospel became getting everyone on the same foothold, or sorry, at the same starting point, then uh, instead of about appeasing the wrath of God. Now, let me give you a great quote here. This comes from a guy, a professor named Gary Dorian. He's a professor at Union Seminary. Union Seminary is like one of the most liberal seminaries in the country, right? So the students will chain themselves, you know, to trees and that kind of stuff. Not joking. They're super, super liberal. Here's his definition, though, of theological liberalism, and it's actually really helpful to understand the movement. Fundamentally, it is the idea of a genuine Christianity not based on external authority. What do they mean by external authority? The Bible, okay? So if we could do Christianity without the Bible, that's what it is. Liberal theology seeks to reinterpret the symbols of Christianity. So it doesn't actually matter if Jesus died on a cross or if he resurrected. Those are symbolic of these deeper things that we can still have. Liberal theology seeks to reinterpret the symbols of Christianity in a way that creates a progressive religious alternative to atheistic rationalism and to theologies based on external authority. Meaning, if you don't want to do fundamentalist Bible thumper Christianity, but you don't want to be an atheist, here's the happy medium. Okay? Specifically, liberal theology is defined by its openness to the verdicts of modern intellectual inquiry, especially the natural and social sciences. 
It's commitment to the authority of individual reason and experience. It's conception of Christianity as an ethical way of life. It's favoring of moral concepts of the atonement, meaning Jesus goes to the cross to set an example of someone who's fully trusting God, not necessarily because he's actually atoning for your sins. And it's commitment to make Christianity credible and socially relevant to modern people. So you start to realize that there are different denominations in Christianity. That is fine. The movement known as theological liberalism or Christian liberalism, again, it's not a political thing. Everything's political, but it's not primarily a political movement. This is a very, very, very different conception of Christianity than the rest of church history. Okay, It is very, very different. Now, why does it exist? What does it seek to do? What is the problem that it's trying to solve? Here's what it is. It is an attempt to save Christianity from intellectual dismissal by modern and postmodern audiences. It believes that if major changes are not made to traditional Christianity, then it will become irrelevant to culture. Okay? So let's do a little, let's take a little poll here. Raise your hand if you've ever met a Muslim. Of course we have. Raise your hand if you have ever met a Hindu. Of course you have. Raise your hand if you've ever met somebody today who is a fervent worshiper of the historic Greco-Roman gods. Right? How come? That used to be the biggest religion in the world. It was the religion under Greece and then under the Roman Empire, which dominated the known world. People would worship Zeus and they would worship Poseidon and they would worship Ares. That was the, that was the jam. That's what everybody did. What happened? It became completely ridiculous. Eventually, Christianity takes over and the stories of Greek gods sleeping with goddesses to produce monsters all of a sudden seemed pretty ridiculous. They believe that that is the future of Christianity if we don't make some changes. If we don't make some changes, people are not going to believe in a talking snake. They're not going to believe in some sort of anti-evolutionary theory. I mean, I think the fact that COVID mutates is an evidence that there's some type of evolution. I think that, uh, you know, that they see that our world is very different than the biblical world. And so what they're saying is we have to take these things seriously or else Christianity will become like Greek mythology. There'll be no re- it's so ridiculous with a talking snake. And you're telling me really there was never a rainbow before God put a rainbow in the sky, like water didn't reflect. I mean, it just seems crazy to a modern audience. And so they're trying to keep the shell of Christianity, but get rid of the rest. Here's what they're trying to do. Let's take the Bible and get rid of anything supernatural and keep the rest. That's the type of Christianity. What would you then have? You would have moral commands, kind of a general idea of God, and that's it. You wouldn't have resurrection. The supernatural stuff is all the good stuff. And that's the stuff that they would seek to remove. It attempts to avoid atheism on the one hand and to avoid historic Christianity based on the external authority of the Bible on the other hand. You guys with me so far? Okay. Now, where does this movement come from in intellectual history? There's going to be four major developments in thought that's going to lead to theological liberalism. Let's walk through a few of them. First of all, it has its roots in the Enlightenment. If you've not listened to our lecture on the Enlightenment... I would encourage you to go back and listen to that when you're fighting traffic and you're mad. Don't just get mad at people. Get educated, right? So listen to these lectures. You might have to slow down the speed because I talk way too fast all the time, all the time. When I'm talking to a kid, when I'm arguing with my wife, when I'm preaching, all the time too fast, okay? So you might have to slow it down, but modern technology will allow you to do that. In the Enlightenment, what you have is this. You have, before the Enlightenment, before the 1600s and 1700s, truth comes to mankind through revelation, God must reveal things to us to know who we are, what our goal is, what is the purpose of life, how can humans flourish? It comes through revelation, meaning God reveals himself in his word. At the Enlightenment, there's a shift, and no longer does truth come through revelation. It comes through reason. It comes through science. It comes through philosophy. And instead of God being at the center of the story and you belonging to a people group, you as an individual thinker with your individual access to truth become uh, placed at the center of the story. So first, it's the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is simply a replacement of truth being revealed to humanity by God with human reason and scientific inquiry. It put the individual at the center of the story. So I want to give you a quote by a particular modern-day theologian about the thinker Immanuel Kant. Okay? When you talk about the greatest philosophers in world history, Kant is in the top four. Okay? But his conception of God and his conception of religion is almost a religion of reason. It's not the God of the Bible. Sometimes when philosophers talk about God, they're not meaning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's a trinity. They're meaning just the ground of being or something like this. Here's how Kant would define religion and see, this, see these enlightenment influences. This is a very enlightenment way of viewing God. 
In religion, within the limits of reason alone, that's one of Kant's works, Kant transformed Christianity from a redemptive historical religion revealed in the Bible into a deistic moralism, meaning be moral, God's really far off, he doesn't interact with us today, he's just the thing that got everything else started. The universe can't be eternal, right, or we would have never gotten to today, so you have to have something that starts it. People do not inherit original sin, but like the story of Adam, every person subverts moral duty, which is ultimate to lesser subordinate priorities. Being born again was not the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but an act of the human will, which reorients the human disposition toward moral duty. Jesus' divinity consisted of his being the archetype of moral goodwill, not the ontological son of God. Jesus' work was not a substitutionary atonement. Sin, or what he called radical evil, is so personal that it cannot be atoned by someone else, but it must be atoned only by the autonomous self. So the first root of theological liberalism comes out of the Enlightenment, okay? They're trying to make Christianity credible to smart people. The scientist, the philosopher, is not going to believe stories of a floating axe head and all these kind of things. It's not going to believe that creation is only however many years old, okay? Don't try to tell me that a dinosaur is the same age as a cat. We can all recognize that seems pretty ridiculous, okay? Second, the movement has its roots in certain philosophical developments such as existentialism. Okay, uh, let's try to do a quick, quick explanation of existentialism. Existentialism is a school of philosophy. It's a way of viewing the world. And it is in contrast to what is called essentialism. What is essentialism? Let's, let's just define it this way. Before existentialism, before these kind of things, how would you know what it meant to be a human? Throw, throw something out for me. How would you know what, what it was like to be a human? Okay, let, let me rephrase that because I, I see why you say experience. Uh, how would you know what a human is supposed to be? How would you know the goal of humanity? Yes, so you would look at these big systems. They're objective. They're standards. What should a human do? A human should grow up and get married and have kids and work a job and do this. Okay, There are these logical, objective systems of thought that don't care about your personal experience. doesn't matter what you think about marriage. Doesn't matter what you think about the goal of humanity. Doesn't matter what you think about political authority. These are established systems of thought. These definitions already are there. They're preformed. They're, they're, they're the essence. That's why it's called essentialism. Okay? In existentialism, it turns that on its head. You start in existentialism with your existence, with your experience. You don't start with things coming predefined, you start defining them yourself. You think I have anxiety and I have dread. My experience is very different. Take a homeless child in China and compare them with somebody who's of nobility in England and ask them their views on government, ask them their views on family, ask them their views on gender. They're going to have very different views. Essentialism should say they should have the same views. Everyone should be trying to conform to the same ideas. Existentialism says, no, we're going to begin our philosophy with existence, with experience. We'll start with us. And we'll move all the definitions, all the logic, all the objective stuff around us. This starts by a very famous philosopher, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, 1813-1855. He's a fascinating character. I really wish there were more movies about Kierkegaard. He was somewhat deformed, so children would mock him and make fun of him. His dad was a Lutheran pastor that thought he was condemned because he had one time blasphemed God. He has this weird, he's like the emo goth kid of the philosophy world. Okay, that's Soren Kierkegaard. And what he is, he's a Danish philosopher who emphasized existence and the personal experience of wrestling with faith over the objective, logical system of thought in Christianity. Here's what Kierkegaard is trying to do. Kierkegaard grows up in Denmark, and he sees that everybody claims to be a Christian, kind of like the American South. They go to church, they're generally moral, but nobody really seems to know God. He's a very religious figure. A lot of existentialists will be atheists, but he is not. He's a very religious figure. He realizes that nobody is wrestling with who God is. He says it's got to be more difficult. So he writes this story about the binding of Isaac, right? So when Abraham has to bind Isaac, and he is saying, what is it like to be Abraham? First of all, notice how he's approaching the question through his experience. What would that be like? Think about for a second what it would be like to be Abraham. You've got your son, your only son that you love. Your wife's super old, you're super old. If this kid dies, all God's promises to you go out the door. And God comes to you and says, commit murder. What is that like? He says, that's the true wrestle of faith. You see, for Kierkegaard, faith is a leap away from reason. If you've ever heard somebody say, don't worry about all those facts, don't worry about all those, just have faith. That's Kierkegaard. 
In the Bible, faith is built on facts. When Paul's asked about the resurrection, he doesn't say, just, just trust me, brother. Rather, he says, well, there were 500 people that saw him, and they're still alive, and you can go talk to them, and miracles and facts, okay? This idea that faith is opposed to reason goes to this guy, Kierkegaard. For Kierkegaard, you have more faith the more unreasonable something is. It takes a lot more faith to believe that two plus two is five than it does that two plus two is four, does it not? So what's gonna happen is you're gonna start to see within Christianity this focus on experience, dread, anxiety, this wrestling with God like Abraham. Forget all this reason. Kierkegaard doesn't want you to give him proofs for the existence of God. He would actually say that that diminishes God. If you, if you say, okay, so if you've ever heard when the Red Sea is parted and the Israelites walk through that, every now and again on like the Discovery Channel, they'll talk about how, you know, there could have been this uh, orbit of the moon and it could have been a dry season and so that would have made the water part and then the people could have walked through it. Kierkegaard would say, you take all the miraculous out of it then. If it's just a natural phenomenon, you don't need God at all. Don't approach Christianity through this apologetics kind of mentality. You can't defend God. Rather, he's something that must be experienced. Okay, that's Kierkegaard. Third, it comes from romanticism. What is romanticism? So just to clarify, this is not you being romantic. Okay, that's not what roman- this is not hearts and flowers. Here's what romanticism is. Romanticism was an intellectual and artistic movement that emphasized passion, subjectivism, the individual, and the transcendental. It was a reaction to the sterile reason and scientific materialism of the Enlightenment. So pretend that you grew up in the Enlightenment. It's all science it's all math. It's all philosophy. You have guys like Bacon. You have guys like Newton. You have guys like Descartes. And so life is no longer mysterious. Life no longer affects you. Everything has become sterile. We are just potentially atoms bumping into one another. There's potentially no meaning in life. Everything that humans can know, we can know through a microscope or we can reason to it with philosophical logic. What happens is people start to get a reaction to that. They start to say, that's too sterile. That's too clinical. What I need is something that doesn't fit within the box. Emotion, passion, mystery, right? Someone like Spinoza can stand there and look at the stars and be like, those are just subsets of God who's an infinite being and everything is one substance and here's a formula. But people don't want that. They want to stand there and they want to say, I'm overwhelmed when I see a sky full of stars. What is that feeling? What is that passion? So what romanticism is, is it's a reaction and it happens in artwork, It happens in intellectual circles. It happens in literature. It is a reaction to how sterile the enlightenment has made everything. When you remove God from the picture and everything is science and philosophy, there's something in the human heart that wants more. We want that that feeling of awe. We want that feeling of excitement. To just think that everything is just ordered materialism doesn't do it for us. And so you get what is called romanticism. What romanticism is going to do, though, is it's going to move away from logic It's going to move away from science. It's going to move away from these enlightenment ideals. And it's going to move towards the self. It's going to move towards experience. Here's a very famous painting you've probably seen. This is is a great piece of romantic artwork. It's called The Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog by Caspar Friedrich. And you see, for people that had been influenced by the enlightenment, how powerful this image is. Here you have a man seeing the mystery, the vastness, the terror of the sea. Notice that he's not looking at it through a microscope. He's not writing some book on the sea. He's standing there being overwhelmed by how majestic the sea and the fog uh, and all that kind of stuff is. Fourth, and most influential, it comes from the theology of F.D.E. Schleiermacher. What a great name, okay? Tim, our resident German scholar, has informed me that Schleiermacher means veil maker in, uh, in German, which is really funny because he will end up obscuring a lot of things. Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher, 1768 through 1834. Schleiermacher's influence is enormous. Even if you've never heard of this guy, which many of you have not, his influence is enormous. It's so big, we thought about doing an entire class just on this guy, but we didn't want to because he is a bad guy. Okay, He is not famous, he is infamous. So I remember taking a class in seminary where uh, the professor asked us, it was a church history class, who are the five most influential thinkers in church history? And some students raised their hand and said silly things, right? So Mark Driscoll or Billy Graham. And he's like, no, not who's influenced you. Who are the biggest thinkers in church history? Number one, who's number one? You know number one. It's Augustine. St. Augustine, hands down. Biggest influence on Western thought outside of the Bible is going to be Augustine. He's going to influence everybody Catholic, everybody Protestant. 
defends the Trinity, formulates the doctrine of grace, original sin, major player. Augustine, no doubt, number one. Who's number two, do you think? No, not yet. We're not to Aquinas yet. Not to, no, not Anselm. Let me just say this word that might help you. Who has most influenced all Protestants? Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, it's a good church answer. Yeah. I'll just wait. I'll say, who's a terrible sinner? And you'll be like, gee, ah, I got you. Who has most influenced Protestants? Luther. Martin Luther is going to be number two. Whereas Augustine is going to influence all Catholics and all Protestants. Everything Protestant is going to go back to Luther. The third one is a guy who's going to influence a lot of Catholics, but because he doesn't come to the Middle Ages, he's not going to have the same influence as Luther. Who's number three? Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, no doubt. In Catholic theology, after Augustine, Aquinas is the man. Who's number four? The most influential Protestant theologian after Luther. John Calvin. John Calvin's going to be number four. And number five is this guy. Okay? Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. He is on the short list of most influential theologians. Now, the difference is those other four guys that I mentioned are good guys. We wouldn't agree with all of them. For example, Aquinas, we're not Catholic, but he's still orthodox. He still holds to certain views of grace and the Trinity and things we would say amen to. Schleiermacher's influence, everything today that has influenced churches towards theological liberalism go back to this guy. That's how influential that he is. Okay? Who is this guy? He is considered the father of liberal theology. He was a German professor, see, I told you, uh, and one of the founders of the University of Berlin. Being influenced by Romanticism, and also by Kierkegaard, by the way, he focused on the divinatory or feminine approach to understanding Scripture. I'll explain this in a second. What this means is that instead of using a method to interpret Scripture that was objective, concrete, and rules-based, he wanted one that was more supra-rational and based on feelings. If you read feminist authors today, which I know you all do, Uh, there's a big focus on feminist readings of literature, okay? And what a feminist will say is the way that a man reads literature is different than the way that a woman reads literature. A man reads literature, whether it be the Bible, the Constitution, whatever, through what is objective, through facts, logic, engineering. That's kind of how the male brain works. But a woman, when she reads, she focuses on other things. She focuses on relationships. She focuses on emotion. She focuses on family. And so we cannot dismiss her reading of certain texts. And so you have what are called, you know, feminist readings of Scripture, feminist readings of, uh, you know, it can be anybody, Chaucer, whatever it might be. What Schleiermacher is doing is he is saying that as we've approached Scripture, sometimes we've been too logocentric, we've been too logical, we've been too rules-based. We need to be approaching, when he says Scripture with a feminine reading or divinatory reading, he means trying to encounter the divine through our feelings through this experience that we have. If you want a summary of the theology of Schleiermacher, here's what it is, ready? The core of Christianity should not be doctrine as it's always been. The foundation of Christianity should be this internal feeling of dependence upon the divine. When you most feel like you're a creature and you're completely dependent on whatever that thing is that made us, that's when you're most doing Christianity to Schleiermacher. Whereas traditional Christianity focused on doctrines and beliefs, Schleiermacher shifted the focus to a feeling of dependence upon the divine, what he calls God consciousness. When you realize that you're a dependent being, that is God consciousness, a very famous phrase of his. To Schleiermacher, listen to this, intuition gives you a sure experience of God than the creeds of the church. As an example of this, he put the doctrine of the Trinity in the very back of his systematic theology textbook in the appendix. Okay? So think about what he's saying by doing that. The center of Christianity is the God we worship, the Trinity. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's eternally been that way. Co-equal, co-eternal. And Schleiermacher so wants to make the center of Christianity this feeling of dependence upon God that he puts the Trinity in the appendix of the theology book that he writes. It's a very bold statement, the name of that book being the Christian faith, which is ironic. Here's a great quote from him. The essence of the religious emotions consisting in the feeling of an absolute, I'm sorry, the essence of the religious emotions consists in the feeling of an absolute dependence. That's what it is for him. That's what it is. For example, Zach, that sounds kind of abstract. Can you give me an example? You bet, church. Let me give you one. Schleiermacher thought that the doctrine of creation was important because when we remember we are created beings, this causes in us a sense of dependence upon the divine. That's good. But the creation stories in Genesis can't be literal. They're hopelessly unscientific. So they are not what is really essential to the Christian faith. So what theological liberalism will do is it will try to get uh, the 
uh, it will try to get the essence of who God is, but get rid of all the theology and the facts that are getting in the way of that in the Bible. So all the stuff in Genesis about creating man from the dirt and creating woman from his rib and a talking snake and, you know, God flooding the whole earth and all that kind of stuff, that's ridiculous. We don't need that. What we need, though, is to know that we're created because that causes us to be dependent upon God. Okay? They're going to do the same thing with the atonement. The aton- we don't need forgiveness of sins with the atonement. We need Jesus to be our moral example of the ultimate God-conscious prophet. Right? So they don't care about the doctrine They want to know what's behind the doctrine. What's behind the doctrine to them? This generic feeling of dependence upon God and this general love towards one another. Okay? Religion is beyond traditional institutions like the Bible and the church and is more about internal spirituality. The Bible does not contain propositions of truth, but rather just the religious consciousness of the biblical authors. Now, there's a bunch of other theological liberals we're going to talk about later in the semester. I've got a a lecture called uh, Enemies of the Faith in the Modern Era. And we'll talk about secular enemies, guys like Freud and Marx and Nietzsche. But we'll also talk about theological enemies, some of these guys. Other theological liberals include F.C. Bauer. And some of these guys, by the way, are brilliant scholars, okay? Bauer had the New Testament in Greek memorized. The standard Greek dictionary that we use today in academic study for New Testament is what's called BDAG. That stands for Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, the editors of that. Bauer, who did the majority of the work, is this guy. F.C. Bauer, Albert Richel, Adolf von Harnack, Rudolf Boltmann, who's the most influential theologian in the U.S. uh, in the 1900s, Horace Bushnell, Walter Rauschenbusch, that's a great name. He is the father of the social gospel movement. If you've ever seen somebody that wants to make Christianity about just social work and social justice, that goes back to Walter Rauschenbusch. Julius Wellhausen, who came up with the JEDP theory, meaning that uh, the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are not written by Moses. Rather, they're an amalgamation of a bunch of different sources, right? Of priestly sources and of people that use God's divine name versus people that just call him God, etc. We'll talk about some of these guys in a later lecture. Okay. Time to everybody to take a, a deep breath, reset your mind. A bunch of weird stuff we're talking about. Oh, relax. Everything's good. Okay? I does not hear in Texas. Everything's good, right? Okay. What does theological liberalism teach? It is a wide and varied movement, but the following are some common beliefs. Jesus was not the eternal son of God, but just a moral prophet. If you've ever heard that, that comes from theological liberalism. The Bible is not an inerrant word of God, but just a work of man. It can be studied and critiqued like any other book. <clears throat> God is not a trinity. The concept of the trinity is logical nonsense. A lot of people who embrace theological liberalism will become Unitarian, meaning they only think that the Father is divine, but not the Son and the Spirit. The message of Jesus is not about salvation from sin, atonement, or resurrection, but a simple message about knowing that there's a higher power, God, and loving your fellow man. There's no hell in theological liberalism. Hell's the first doctrine to go. When people start drifting into liberalism, It starts with, I'm going to say something very controversial, it starts historically with Arminianism. Once you move down the list on the sovereignty of God and you start thinking man gets a say, that's the beginning shift of theological liberalism. But the first doctrine that gets denied in theological liberalism is hell. Why do you think that is? Because we don't like it and we're humans and we're making a religion so might as well get rid of the thing we hate. What do you think the second thing is that gets denied right after this? Angels and demons. That seems ridiculous to a modern audience. Not only that there's one God, they can deal with that, but that there's, you know, these weird ghosts with horns all around us, messing with us all the time, you know, taking air out of our tires or something. We're trying to go to church. Angels and demons do not exist in theological liberalism. The miracles in the Bible did not happen. Rather, their story. Jesus, for the liberals, when he multiplies the loaves and the fish, he didn't actually do this miracle. That is a lesson about how people saw that Jesus was sharing his food So then they all started sharing their food and everybody was taken care of. Okay, we don't need the miraculous to have a helpful story there. Sin is equated with ignorance. They focus on the imminence, but not the transcendence of God. Okay, you can find the divine presence in many different ways throughout the world. Many liberals were actually panentheists or pantheists, meaning they think that either everything is God or that God is beyond nature, but nature is part of God. So everything's kind of divine for a lot of these guys. But notice, The God of the Bible, we first understand him as transcendent, okay? That he is holy other, he is infinite. He comes close to us in the person of Christ, which is incredible, okay? That God is transcendent and imminent. The liberals will focus on theological imminence, though, the closeness of God near you in your heart, not on his otherness and his transcendence. There's a song that churches sing sometimes at Easter, 
And it goes like this. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, he talks to me, long life, narrow way. Okay, you know the song. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, what? He lives within my heart. What theologically liberal nonsense. Is that how we know that Jesus lives? Because we have a feeling in our heart? Because if there's a grave with Jesus' body in it, I don't care. That That idea comes from theological liberalism. Whether or not the resurrection really happened, who cares? He lives in my heart the same way grandma does when we remember her on her birthday, right? Or when I get some political email that I didn't want to receive that somebody just blasted out. I think of grandma. And that reminds me, she lives in my memory. That's not what we mean. You ask me how I know he lives, the grave he did depart. That should be the line, okay? But that is theological liberalism. You see, it's influenced us without us even knowing it. What else do they hold? Humanity is progressing and the world is getting better. Most theological liberals are post-millennial. Now, don't let that color your view of that. There's also theological conservatives, even major players like Jonathan Edwards who are post-millennial. But most theological liberals are because they think that things are getting better. Humanity is progressing. The world is becoming more uh, wholesome and holy. The signs and language of Christianity are not what matter. Rather, the essence behind them, which can be found in other places, you don't need Christianity to experience God, are what is important. Jesus' death was a moral example to teach us to trust God. It was not a substitutionary atonement to take away God's wrath. The first part of that phrase is not untrue. They just deny the second part. Jesus' death does a lot of things. One of the things he does set an example for us is for the joy set before him enduring the cross. That is an example for us, but it's more than just an example. It also takes away the wrath of God. Jesus was not literally raised from the dead, but was raised in the sense that we remember him in our hearts today when we trust God and serve others. Hence my little example. Jesus isn't literally coming back. Rather, we bring in the kingdom of God now through social work and human advancement. By the way, does any of this stuff sound remotely familiar about like what's going on in evangelicalism today? Yes. We fought the theological liberal battle 70 years ago and won. And now we're losing it again because the following generation failed to study history and failed to go to school and failed to learn the Bible and they're falling into the same traps. We've already done this. It's very boring and frustrating. Religion should change, be changed based upon one experience. Does that sound familiar? Christianity is not about doctrine, but about social work. Does that sound familiar? We should adapt the doctrines of Christianity to make it relevant to each changing generation. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Let me give you some great quotes about theological liberalism. First one comes from John Hanna, church historian, who says this. In theological liberalism, Christian religion became little more than common grace dispensed through programmatic kindness. Minority rights, international aid, self-help management techniques, and political activism. Where you see churches that are pushing those things primarily instead of doctrine, that's a church that's been influenced by theological liberalism, even though they've probably never read Schleiermacher. Okay? The ghost of Schleiermacher haunts us today. Richard Niebuhr has a great one. Here's theological liberalism. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of Christ without a cross. And then this next one is so damning to Christians today that want to drift towards, again, not political, theological liberalism. It comes from Richard Rorty. Anybody know who Richard Rorty is? He is probably the preeminent postmodern philosopher to come out of America. Okay? The, the postmodern guys are primarily French, right? Jean-Paul Lyotard or Michel Foucault or Jean Baudrillard or Jacques Derrida. You hear a lot of French names in there? Again, I got a lot of strong opinions on France. But postmodernism starts as a French movement. The preeminent American postmodernist is a guy named Richard Rorty. And listen to this. He's the grandson of Walter Rauschenbusch, that guy, that social gospel thing. Now listen to what he says. He's an atheist. He's a postmodernist. Okay? Listen to this quote. It is so powerful in my mind. I'm delighted that liberal theologians do their best to try to accommodate Christianity to modern science, modern culture, and democratic society. If I were a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be appalled by the wishy-washiness of the liberal version of Christian faith. But since I'm a non-believer who is frightened of the barbarity of many fundamentalist Christians, for example, their homophobia, I welcome theological liberalism. Maybe liberal theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy that no one will be interested in being a Christian anymore. If so, something will have been lost, but probably more will have been gained. Okay? He completely, though he's an atheist, though he's a postmodernist, he completely understands what's going on with this. He's saying, this isn't Christianity. It's too wishy-washy. I don't like historic Christianity. That's too mean, right? Just ask the LGBTQ community. That's too mean. 
So my hope is that so many Christians will be lured into theological liberalism that it will become Greek mythology. It won't matter anymore. And then there won't be Christianity and the world will be great. That's a powerful statement because I think he understands this better than probably 80% of evangelical churches. Okay? Differences between historic Christianity and liberal Christianity. Orthodox Christianity compared to liberal Christianity. How would they view God in Orthodox Christianity? Trinitarian. He's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. In liberal Christianity, Unitarian. Okay? Jesus is the eternal Son of God in Orthodox Christianity. In liberal Christianity, he's simply a God-conscious prophet. Authority in historic Christianity is the Bible. The authority in theological liberalism is experience and feelings. Salvation in biblical Christianity is through Christ. And uh, in theological liberalism, it is through education, right? So if we could just teach people not to be such sinners, the problem is ignorance. It's not sin. It's not a matter of their being, being infected with sin. If we could just educate the evil out of people, that would be great. By the way, what was the most educated nation in the world in 1942? Nazi Germany. Okay. The problem is not education. Sinners will use education just to kill more people more quickly. The problem is that we need to be redeemed. And I'm a big fan of education, but that's not our main problem, okay? Sin in historic Christianity is rebellion against God. In theological liberalism, it's simply ignorance. The atonement in real Christianity is penal and substitutionary, meaning penal meaning that it is a punishment, that, that, uh, that the wrath of God due to you is being taken by another, and substitutionary meaning Jesus takes it in your place. Either you die or Jesus dies. So he dies so that you don't have to stand under the wrath of God. In uh, theological liberalism, it's a moral example. The focus in historic Christianity is the gospel. The focus in liberal Christianity is social work. The Bible is God's word. The Bible for the theological liberal is simply a record of human religion. Now, Zach, you keep saying that part of this influence of theological liberalism is social work and social justice. Does that mean all forms of helping people are bad? No. Okay, remember, social justice is not the same thing as what the Bible talks about when it talks about Christians helping those in need. We are to help those in need. But the Bible actually gives us a very helpful example of the role that social work should play in the church. I've included a passage here from Acts 6, 1 through 4. Listen to this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, meaning of food. They're handing out food to all these widows who don't have husbands, and some of these are getting overlooked. And the twelve summoned, that's the twelve disciples, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Here's what they're doing. They're saying the church has two jobs, preaching the word, doctrine, theology, prayer, spiritual stuff, and helping others. But notice the order they go in. This one's primary. This one's first. This one's secondary. What some churches will do is they'll completely neglect any sort of social work. They won't care for the poor. They won't try to help those in need. They won't try to get, you know, get someone a job who's down on, their, down on their luck. That's not what the disciples do. The disciples don't say, don't help these widows with food. We're busy preaching. But they also don't do what a lot of churches do, which is where they say, now let's make the social work primary. Disciples, stop praying and doing all that doctrine stuff. Let's get out there and just help the poor. They don't do that. The disciples literally hear that women aren't getting food and they say, you know what's more important than that? Bible stuff. We're not going to give up doing Bible stuff. So the correct answer to how to do this in churches is the primary thing that the church does, especially the elders, is teaching doctrine, discipleship, prayer, spiritual stuff. The members of the church are then to be involved in acts of justice out in society. Okay? That's why they appoint people that are not the apostles to go do that. You don't do... You don't subvert those, that order. You don't put the social work on the top, nor do you completely neglect the social work. You put it in its proper place. Phrases you hear in church today that have been influenced by theological liberalism. Okay, now let me just clarify what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say are implications. Some of them are direct quotes that I've heard from Christians in church. Some of them, though, are implications of what those people say. Now, this doesn't mean that each of the phrases I'm about to read would have been held by Bauer or would have been held by Schleiermacher. Rather, I'm trying to show you how their influence has attached into the church today to some other liberal movements and how it's all become one big mess. Now, let me clarify something else before I get into this. Some of the phrases I'm about to say 
you might feel like is a caricature. But listen, to critique the logical implications of someone's position is not a caricature. Okay? I don't have to care what they mean. I don't have to care what's going on in their heart. Because that's what the prophets do. In the book of Isaiah, they make fun of those that worship idols. They cut down part of the tree, throw it in the fire, make the other into an idol, and they bow down before it. Well, the idol worshiper would say, well, wait a second, Isaiah. That's a caricature. We don't worship the idol. We worship the God behind the idol. We don't think we make our gods. We just make an image of our gods. But the prophets don't care what they're intending. Logically, at the end of the day, they're bowing down to a piece of wood. So some of these are direct quotes that I've heard. Some of them, though, are implications of what they've said. It's, Christians are free to, to, to critique both. We can, the logical implication of something is just as true as the thing itself. And so if something leads to a logical implication that's ridiculous, it's totally legitimate to point that out. So let me give you a few quotes on this. I don't attend church, but I'm very spiritual. Ever heard somebody say that? Theological liberalism. I don't have to listen to what you say because I don't like the way that you're saying it. The tone argument gets used all the time in evangelicalism to dismiss truth. Okay? If you can say that somebody's being mean, then you can dismiss their argument. That's ridiculous. Tone matters, but it doesn't matter as much as truth. How do I know? Because everything Jesus says is true, and he doesn't always say it with a nice tone. Okay? They both matter. I'm not saying go be a jerk. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, as the Bible would say. Tone and content are both important. Content is much more important, though. You can't tell me that because you're of a different race than me or of a different gender than me. Didn't have to grow up the way I did. Didn't know what I've been through. That's that existentialism. That's that appeal to that personal experience. Okay? Let me, let me just, what's a, what's a good strong way to say this? Your experiences do not help you interpret the Bible. They get in the way of you interpreting the Bible. Okay? You being white does not help you interpret the Bible because it was written by Jews 2,000 years ago or more. You being black does not help you interpret the Bible because it was written by Jews 2,000 years ago. You being a woman does not help you interpret the Bible because none of the Bible is written by women. Okay? Your experiences get in the way of interpreting the Bible. They don't help you do it. Now, if you raise your hand and you say, Zach, I'm a 2,000-year-old Jew living under Roman domination, then I say, your experiences are super helpful. But unless it's you, it's not helpful. People can be saved even if they don't consciously know Christ, right? They can just trust the God within them. Someone who has a sincere faith in a different religion can still find God. The sincere Muslim, the sincere Buddhist, whatever it might be. It is morally wrong for you to tell me something if it's true, if it offends me, or we don't have a deep relationship. Typically what happens is when you need to press somebody on something, you give them truth. They won't respond by fighting you on truth. That's too logical. They can't do that. They'll find a way to wiggle out of it so they still don't have to hear it. That is an influence of theological liberalism. Our church will get more people if we're not as controversial. If we don't make this doctrinal change, then we won't reach the next generation. God told me in my heart, meaning experience. Now, this is not to comment on spiritual gifts today. We will talk about that when we get there in 1 Corinthians. But most Christians don't start by listening to God's voice in the Bible. They start by listening for what they feel like God is doing. Despite the fact that the Bible says, your heart's desperately wicked, who can trust it? Don't trust your heart. Your heart is bad, bad sin. Don't trust heart. Stop doing that. Listen to your heart when it's calling for you. Songs like this, don't do that. Church leadership has too long been dominated by rich, white, straight men. We preach the whole gospel, which includes social justice. Okay, notice what they're doing. The problem is not that they're talking about biblical justice, which the Bible deals with. It's that they're trying to say, we pre don't worry about all this Jesus salvation wrath stuff. Let's move on so we can talk about what's going on today in America. Even if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that wouldn't affect my faith. I'd still love others. About every Easter, they'll have something on TV where they get like a Catholic priest and a Jewish rabbi and a Protestant or whatever, and they'll say, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, would you still be a Christian? And they're all like, for sure I would. And I'm like, Paul says he wouldn't be. That if Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is in vain, okay? If you're just gonna die and become worm food, party on your way out. Be a smart lost person. Dumb lost people are the most fraught. Just be consistent. I want everyone just to be consistent. I don't care what you hold, whether you're saved. I just want you to be consistent, okay? If you're gonna be lost, be real lost. Don't be dumb, boring lost, okay? White people have inherent privilege and cannot see what's going on as clearly as black people. When Paul says that in Christ, listen, he doesn't say there's both Jew and Greek. Both male and female. He says, in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Stop talking about race. There's neither 
slave nor free. Stop talking about socioeconomic distinction. There's neither male nor female. He's trying to say, stop trying to make yourself unique. Stop trying to make yourself different from other Christians. All the race, gender, socio, that's boring, it's banal, that's not Christianity. Focus on what makes you a Christian, which is Christianity. The Bible says stop caring about these differences, and our culture says only care about these differences. It's a very different way of approaching Christianity. God is always on the side of the poor, no matter how they got there. Again, that's not true. He's on the side of the righteous poor, but he opposes the unrighteous poor. The voices of women have been ignored in the past, so we need to right this wrong by elevating their opinions and claims. What you say is just as important as how you say it. Again, it's important. Some of you have used the fact that Parkway is bold and we just say it as a license to be a jerk. You should never do that, okay? But content is still more important than tone. Stop caring about all that doctrine and theology stuff and just get out there and help the poor. I know that's in the Bible, but that advice just doesn't feel right to me. I've counseled many people who I spend hours and hours counseling them and they basically say, thanks, Zach. Thanks for your education. Thanks for your professionalism, but I'm probably just going to go do the thing I already wanted to do anyway. Okay? They don't say that, but they do with their actions. Criminals commit crimes because of ignorance or their upbringing. We should teach men to respect women. That will prevent sexual assault. Okay? The problem, again, is not education, especially from a Darwinian worldview. If you're not a Christian and you believe we're just evolved animals, then men have evolved literally to try to reproduce as much as possible. So you're not going to be able to educate that out of them as they assault women. From the biblical worldview... You can say that man was made good, but we fell because of sin. And the way that you prevent men from assaulting women is through the gospel. They have to have their heart changed and realize this is a moral issue. We need to stay credible and relevant. By the way, anytime a church says that they're relevant, they're instantly not. Okay? Like if that's on their name, that's like walking into a party and being like, hey, everyone, I'm cool. You're instantly not. Okay? So when churches claim to be relevant or put it on their name or whatever, it's more important to live like Jesus than to believe correct doctrine. Stop studying so much and listen to your heart. This is something that has roared back, especially over the last few years, in churches. But it's important for us to understand the history. This is not theological liberal. Christians are free to disagree on some political things. Christians are free to disagree on COVID stuff. We're free to disagree on mass stuff. We're, we're free to disagree on that. If you hold too strong a views in that, you need to think more like a Christian. If the Bible's not commanded something explicitly, there's Christian freedom. The actual theological liberalism, though, has to do with doctrine, and it's so far off that I don't even think it's Christianity. Okay? Let's pray, and Jared will come answer some questions for us. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this lesson. We pray that Parkway would be a place that always loves the truth, that you would keep us from drifting. But I also pray that you would keep us from drifting too weirdly right, that we would become more conservative than the Bible. We, don't want to, we just want to be biblical. We just want to be faithful. Would you help us with that? We love you and thank you.